There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, folks. You're listening, as you may well know by now, to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, in January 2020, the government announced as part of the centenary commemorations an event to remember the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary. The RIC had been the police force in this country from 1836 until 1922 when it was disbanded and Ungarda Shikhana formed. The force has, I suppose you could put it very neutrally or mildly, a very mixed history, having been seen in many quarters as, as a tool of the British government and a lot of its members were targeted for killing for execution, assassination, whatever you want to call it, during the War of Independence. So when this event was announced, I think it's fair to say all hell broke loose, on Twitter at least. There was an outcry and expressions of outrage and in the end it was cancelled. Interestingly, political scientists have suggested that the whole shebang had an impact on the general election that followed weeks later, in which Sinn Féin made some large gains. What did emerge though, is that there still appears to be problems defining the RIC's role in Irish history, even at this remove. Some of that may be down to the fact that it was augmented in its dying days, effectively, during the War of Independence by the reviled Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, but one suspects there is more to it than that. One man who has some insight into the RIC and how it is remembered is RT's Europe editor, Tony Connolly. Tony's grandfather was a member of the force and his career and where it ended up is a fascinating story which Tony has put together in a documentary, Hidden History, to be aired next Monday, June the 12th. Tony, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Great to be here. Tony, I suppose if we could just start with yourself before we get into your grandfather's story. You grew up in County Derry, as I understand it, and I think you're of an age, more or less myself, so you would have grown up right through the troubles in relatively nationalist area. Your background that your father was in the RIC, was it known or how, how was it considered and how was it considered within the family during that period? So, yeah, my grandfather was in the uh, Royal Irish Constabulary and then the RUC uh, after partition. And that's essentially why I'm a northerner. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been uh, from Carrick on Shore or somewhere like that. So my father was born in Larne uh, in County Antrim, son of a, an RUC policeman, one of six kids. Um, but I was raised in first of all, in Port Stewart and County Derry to the age of six and then Derry City from six. I was raised as a typical Catholic uh, nationalist. My my family were mostly SDLP voters. Um, so the, the, because my grandfather died actually just six months before I was born, uh, he, he wasn't a, you know, a presence in my life who might have cast a shadow over uh, the, the the sectarian and, you know, the, the conflict that happened then. So he wasn't really talked about very much. 
So there, there was it was never like a secret that uh, we kept from anybody. Um, you know, he was in the RIC from the age uh, from 1908 until 1922, and then after a few months in in the UK, he joined the RUC and then retired. I think in in the early 50s. Um, so, I mean, there, there it he wasn't talked about not out of any sense of of shame or trying to hide uh, you know skeletons in, in in the closet but simply because of the passing of time i think my father found that he was a somewhat remote uh, figure my father was the youngest of six so we didn't um so he didn't have a lot of sharing of stories with his father about life as an ric man uh, or indeed RUC men, but but there, you know there were stories that were passed down, and that was really all I had when I set out on this journey to find out about my grandfather, both as an RIC man and then as an RUC man. Yeah, it's very interesting actually. It, it is, as you say, and I'm sure it must have been a very interesting journey, even physically, literally. And the journey, uh, I think, begins in East Galway, and your grandfather Patrick, he would have been a, just. Typical family from East Galway at the time. Yeah, well, my, my it, it was my I think great great grandfather was called Patrick. My grandfather was was Michael Connolly. Sorry, Michael. Again. Yeah, yeah, right. And uh, so yeah, so he was born in eighteen eighty seven, one of thirteen children in a very small parish called Clonina near Kilconnell, which is in turn near Balnasloe. Um and, you know, he would have been born into rural poverty. I, I have a record of the 1901 census uh, describing his father, uh, Matthew Connolly, as a shepherd. Um, he had a, a clutch of brothers and sisters who emigrated to America in the 1900s. He had a, a brother who died aged 18. Um, so it was a big rural family, and he was the one who joined the, the RIC, which would have been quite a common pathway for you know, a rural family at that time, uh, you know, there were very few jobs that provided a salary and a pension. Um, and, you know, the vast bulk of the RIC were young Catholic uh, sons of farm labourers or farmers or, or smallholders or tradesmen, shopkeepers and so on. So so that that was his, his origin, you know, uh, East Galway, uh, 1887 joined the RIC in 1908. Yeah, and the interesting thing, and like this is obviously documented historically, but just in terms of popular perceptions and what have you. But like your grandfather came from the typical, as you say, rural family. His siblings, presumably those who didn't have to immigrate, went into other ordinary jobs, and he just happened to be one that joined the RIC. It wasn't as we have, for example, in, in some other European countries, in particular, particularly historically that the, the the police force was effectively drawn from a particular caste or whatever you might want to call it. It was literally just drawn right out from the heart of, of what was the, the vast majority of people, poor Catholics. That's right. I mean, certainly the uh, the upper echelons of the RIC were, were predominantly Protestant, um, but the, the rank and file were, were certainly uh, Catholic from a rural background. Um, I mean, the RIC has, as you mentioned, you know, has a long history going back to 1836. You know, they got the royal prefix from Queen Victoria in 1867. Um, you know, they were associated in a very negative sense with the, the land war uh, evictions and so on. They were brought in to, quote unquote, keep the peace. So they got a very bad rap over that. 
But by the time my grandfather joined in the in the 1900s, the land war had finished. Uh, you know, there there was a, a program of selling land uh, to 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 local uh, farmers. It was a fairly benign period, I think, and you know the the RIC certainly at that time had become largely domesticated. You know, they were yes, of course, they were the official colonial British police force in Ireland, but they did a fairly uh, you know domestic uh, innocuous uh, set of duties. Like you know, I, I was able to trace my grandfather's work uh, to the Dingle Petty Sessions, where you know he he at a at, you know his first posting was in Castle Gregory, and he there there is a record of him taking people to court for you know uh, abuses of the alcohol laws, or had somebody not having a light on their bike, or having the, their donkey out on the on the highway. Um, so that that's a sense of his day to day work, and yes, of course. Um, historically, the British government had seen the RIC as a very important bulwark against um, agrarian um, violence in the 19th century. And also, you know, a lot of the RIC barracks that were built in the 19th century were f- slightly fortified because of the French, uh, the threat of a French invasion. Um, but by the time my grandfather joined, I think it would have been a fairly mild, tolerant uh, period Um you know, I suppose the, the calm before the storm, if you like. Yeah, I, I suppose in, in some ways, I suppose what you're um, sketching there, you know, it wouldn't be all that different for take it forward 30, 40 years and the type of role of the rural guard best depicted by the likes of John McGahern and that the, 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 the kind of issues that arose and their position in small rural communities. Um, but as you said, that was the calm before the storm, what was about to come in terms of the, the what we now call the revolutionary decade. But your grandfather, Michael, he met uh, his future wife in Castle Gregory and that immediately necessitated being transferred. Yeah, so the the way the RIC was set up and, and, and run, it was a, an extremely disciplined organisation. There was a very strict code of conduct and you were strictly not allowed to stay in the parish or the location where uh, you met your wife. Uh, if you got married, you had to move. And my my grandmother Nora Flynn was her name. She would have been vetted by the by the police before she was able to marry my grandfather. She was the daughter of the local school teacher in Castle Gregory, uh, John Flynn. Um, her her brother Tim, uh, for example, had gone to. London to do the civil service exam with Michael Collins. Um, uh, the, the, they did the, the exam on the same day. So, you know, that was a, an indication of the sort of vibe that was around at that time. You know, the, the, Ireland was part of the, the, the British Empire, if you like. But again, just before the storm was about to break. Um, so they then had to move to, to Carrick-on-Sure, um, in 1915, they got married in 1915. We we found uh, a beautiful little write up of the wedding uh, on the front page of the Kerry Advocate when I was doing the research, and uh, described no pictures obviously, but described what the bride wore and the uh, the, the the final line is something like um, you know fr- friends and relatives wished the the Connollys uh, years of connubial bliss as they headed off to Dublin on their on their honeymoon by motor, <laughs> as I was put. Uh, and, and I think that's a kind of a poignant moment because that was 1915. They had their young lives ahead of them and then suddenly everything was to change. 
Yeah, of course, as it was with the Easter Rising in 1916, a change of mood in the country. And even though there, in, in those early years, uh, it would seem like that to some extent he was still able to, as an RIC man in, in Carrigan Shore, function, as you might say, a policeman in normal circumstances. And he even rescued people um, who were involved in the, in the, in a fire in, in, in the town and yeah. all, saved their lives. Yeah, that that's right. Um, th- so, in in the research, um, we we uncovered um, details about a fire in Carrickonshire Main Street in 1916, and there was a a family in the in the in the in the house, and my grandfather and two other RIC men were were given medals by um the royal society for the protection of uh life uh, from fire uh, which are quite rare medals um and, and we we found some write ups in the local paper about about the event and um my my grandfather managed to to pull uh, the mother from from the building resuscitated her um i mean they were quite a well known family in the area one of the family members was a very well known photographer um who whose collection uh is still in the uh, museum in Kilkenny. Um, so, so that so that was the kind of work he was doing. You know, like that that would have obviously been a very dramatic moment for him. Um, one of the policemen he got the medals with was also from Kerry, and he was later shot dead by the IRA on the bridge in Carrick on Shore, um, just a few years later during the War of Independence. So, it just goes to show, no matter about the heroics of. The, the police work in 1916, by the time the independence, the War of Independence came around, uh, none of that counted for very much. Um, so, so, that, so that was the, yeah, that was an indication of the kind of work he was doing. But then, obviously, things changed very dramatically after the, after the rising and the executions. Um, you know, there were a lot of, uh, there, there was a lot of um, agitation over conscription uh, into the First World War at that time. And then, of course, Sinn Féin began to generate, uh, you know, uh, uh, create clubs around the country, and there were there was drilling. And then, of course, we we slid into the um, the, the War of Independence. Yeah, and that people put the starting point of, of that at uh, Solohead Big, which is not too far from Carrick on Shore, and and that was the. Um, that was the engagement, wasn't it? When some IRA men they they went after some arms and two RIC men were shot dead. And mm. it, it, it really strikes that, you know, geographically, that was pretty, as I say, it wasn't far from Carrigan Shore and must have come as some shock for people like your grandfather. Yeah, the, so, yeah, Solohed Beg, you're, you're right to say, was seen as the, the opening shots in the War of, of Independence. It, it actually happened the day that the first Doyle was um, sort of sworn in. So it has that powerful significance. Um, but Tipperary in general was... A very violent place during the War of Independence, as it had been in um, the 19th century. Remember, Robert Peel, who set up the RIC, initially was uh, an MP for Cashel, and um, there was a long tradition of agrarian violence and rebelliousness, if you like, in, in Tipperary. And I think in 1920, uh, out of the 178 RIC men who were who were killed, tw- 20 of them were killed in. In in County Tipperary, so it was a, a violent place, and yeah, but that would have been a very shocking event. It, it was widely condemned 
at the time by by the Catholic Church and by a lot of people. Um, and it's it's not clear um, if I'm correct in saying that it was sanctioned by the IRA leadership. This was obviously carried out by Dan Breen mm. and the the, the third uh, South Tipperary Brigade. Um, and he said afterwards that he was sorry only two RIC men were killed. They, they, they should have killed at least six if 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 they were really to make an impression. Um, so so that was the you know the very sudden and brutal upheaval that started the whole the whole war of independence. And my grandfather would have been in in the midst of that. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. And then one of the, I suppose, everyday practical fallout from people who were in the RIC was, in a lot of areas, there was um, a boycott of them by people who, and it certainly would seem that the majority, if not vast majority, of of the uh, of the country was uh, in favour of the of the um, the IRA during the War of Independence. So that must have really, in terms of uh, just family life, everyday life, and and the person's role in society, how it had changed, that must have been a huge. Disturbing change for for uh, for people like your grandfather and his family, of course. Yeah, so my, my grandfather, um, yeah, so he was living in Carrick-on-Sure with um, with my grandmother. They the, the first born was uh, Matt, my uncle Matt, in nineteen sixteen. Um, so they, they had three children in Carrick-on-Sure altogether, and then at a certain point, the the boycott kicked in, and this is something we look at in some detail in the the documentary. But suffice to say. Uh, my grandfather was refused um, a shirt in in a shop in uh, Carrick on Shore, um, and w- w- you know went angrily next door <laughs> apparently and was refused there as well. But that would have had a a very debilitating effect on him and on on my grandmother who you know relied on local shops to to buy food and 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 to buy clothing for the family um and suddenly they were outcast now this was initially i think an, an ira boycott but then it was later mandated by the doyle and then you know as the war of independence got uh, into full swing you know there were much more strident denunciations of the RIC by De Valera uh, and others and it was made clear that they were to be made utterly ostracized and and social outcasts you, you weren't supposed to sit next to them in in church um or have any social interaction with them whatsoever and if you were a young woman you were not allowed to fraternize with RIC men uh, so you know within a very short period of time from being part of the fabric of normal life in small Irish towns, they were suddenly the enemy and outcast. And then, of course, they were they were being killed in in quite large numbers. Yeah, that, it is just from their perspective. And and you see, I suppose it's a perspective many of us never thought about in terms. And that's actually why 
the documentary, I have to say, Tony, is very informative. Many of us wouldn't have thought to view the scenario through those eyes. But as you said, these were people who basically came from exactly the same background as the people who were on the other side fighting with the IRA and what have you in general terms. And, and then it advances to this point. And a certain number of those in the RIC at various stages over those years, going from 18, 19, right up to 21, 22 even, packed it in. They left either out of fear. Mm. Some of them actually switched sides. Some of them just decided they, they couldn't handle it anymore. Your grandfather stuck in there. Yeah, so my, my grandfather stayed stayed with it until um, until the RIC was disbanded. And he was disbanded from Castle Company in Dublin Castle. So they, they had to keep a, a guard company uh, of RIC men in Dublin Castle until the handover. Um, and the, the, the records we've been able to uh, uncover show that, that that's where he uh, ended up. Um, I mean, quite a few of his friends and colleagues were, were killed, um, including the man, as I mentioned, uh, who who helped him pull the family from the the burning building? Um, I mean, this this was I suppose this was a central conundrum for me in trying to go on this journey about my grandfather. Like, where did he stand in himself on the issues? Like, wh- what did he believe uh, in terms of the national question of colonialism of his role as an RIC man? From what I gather from talking to my father and. My aunt Mary, who's still with us at age ninety-eight and a great fount of knowledge, oh, she lives in she lives in Toronto. Um, uh, she um, she said he never talked about the War of Independence to to the kids growing up, um, but we we know that um, that there was an attempt on his life. Somebody uh, confronted him in a shop uh, in Carrickonshire uh, to kill him, and uh, the people in the shop said, "You're not going to shoot him in front of his son," because my my uncle Matt, who would have been four years old at the time, was with him. And so the gunman uh, apparently backed off and says, I'm not going to kill you now, but I'll, I'll get you, Connolly. Those are the words. Um, so, you know, if, if I mean, there, there, there's certainly evidence that some of the RIC men who were targeted were targeted because they were seen as sort of vindictively anti-Republican or you know, had been responsible for rough searches or 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 whatever. Um it's it's impossible for me to know what where my father stood on the the spectrum of those who were either sympathetic to the IRA, maybe passed information to the IRA, uh, or just, you know, did didn't just felt they had a job to do, or or maybe felt, you know, they were there to defend uh, law and order and that the IRA were the enemy. I just, I just don't know where my father stood on that spectrum. Um, but years later, you know, he he, he would say that uh, he, he was a great admirer of Michael Collins and that de Valera had ruined the country, um, if he was ever asked. But, um, uh, but you know, like he, he was a singer. He played the accordion when he was in Castle Gregory. At Christmas time, apparently, um, when, when pressed, he would sing and he would sing songs like The Fields of Athen Rye and She Moved Through the Fair and The West's Awake. You know, these were, you know, Irish nationalist songs. Um, and that was the, you know, that was inside him, you know. That, so I, I find it intriguing to, to figure out where, how he internalized this himself, that the, the job he did 
and where he stood on partition and independence and so on. Yeah, it, it it is a very interesting one actually. That um, where exactly would you say? Because you you'd other people like, for instance, um, Sean O'Fuelan, the writer. His father was an RIC man as well, and and, and there are other people who were even prominent within within the uh, the independence movement. And that, but the the ultimate outcome though for people like your grandfather who stayed in was when the new state was formed. They were in uh, between a rock and a hard place, really, weren't they? And, and, and your grandfather initially went to England for a, a brief period, but I suppose, like a lot of people, he found it didn't suit him. Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, that you're right. I mean, the, the the like the authorities had real problems trying to figure out what to do with the RIC, and it became an issue of major political importance in 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 London and Westminster. Uh, Winston Churchill uh, eventually set up a. A, a tribunal of inquiry into the RIC because I think around 4,000 of them fled to England. Um, you know, after, like, as, as you said, you know, like the, the RIC and the IRA were from the same locale. They knew each other. They were the same background. And there were an awful lot of scores being settled even after the truce. Um, you know, quite a few RIC men were murdered after the truce. And there's a suspicion that that was... You know, you had these what they called trusseliers who were very late in the day IRA volunteers who who wanted to show their mettle and would shoot an an RIC man as a tough target, a soft target. Um, the records we were able to uncover showed that my grandfather was paid compensation by this tribunal that uh, Churchill set up of ninety pounds because they had to sell furniture in a hurry, which suggests that they they were kind kind of fleeing. Uh, Ireland, and he did go to to the UK. Um, but Churchill had had uh, asked all the colonies, like South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, could they take in these uh, this quote unquote fine body of men who were being hounded out of Ireland, um, experienced upright men who who tried to defend the empire? Uh, could they be taken into Canada or Australia? And the, Churchill was flatly refused because um because in in these countries you had irish uh, people who were already in the the police force of uh, australia or new zealand and they you know b- because of the stigma of the black and tans they didn't want ric men anywhere near them so they were they were actually cut adrift um about 200 of them ended up working for the the new british mandate in palestine uh, and stayed in the Middle East, you know. So that that's a that's a separate documentary, uh, yeah, I'm sure. But fascinating, uh, it. But, but, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So so my grandfather was one of them who who went to uh, England. He for, for whatever reason he couldn't hack it. Um, I know that my uncle, my great uncle Tim, the the, the contemporary in, uh, of Michael Collins, uh, took him in. Uh, but for whatever reason, they they didn't stay. And his brother-in-law, who was also an RIC man from Galway. He uh, had just got a job in Newry with the new RUC, so he convinced my grandfather that they were taking men in in the north to join the RUC. I think thirteen hundred altogether uh, former RIC men joined the RUC, and my grandfather was one of them. So he then found himself in Ballycastle in County Antrim, which was actually quite a republican town uh, at that time. But he ended up in Larne for for most of his career as as an RUC uh, constable, then sergeant. Um, uh, and and that's where he lived out his his policing days, and that's where my father was was born and grew up. Yeah, it is, and again, it's it's fascinating from the perspective of like your grandfather's background, where they came from, and then to end up effectively being part of that police force and viewed. 
by the the nationalist people as 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 being part of an oppressive state probably in a very different way than, for example, he had been viewed maybe 10, 15 years earlier prior to the revolutionary period down south as well. So it, it was um, like that. It was, it was a, a strange trajectory. It would appear strange from that point of view, you know. Mm. Yeah. No, that, that, that's what really fascinated me about, about his life. You know, even before the controversy over the commemoration blew up, I'd always sort of harbored this interest in in trying to find out about his life because of that trajectory, as you say. But, you know, a lot of the, you know, because of the um, the rule that we talked about where you couldn't stay in your lo- location if you married somebody, a lot of the R- RIC men pre-partition who were filling the barracks up, up in the north, like in Belfast and Antrim and Derry, a lot of them were from the south. Um, now, I oh. found out that, so, so my grandfather's second posting was... Uh, was Armoy. It's a small village in County Antrim. It's famous for being the birthplace of uh, Joey Dunlop, the, uh, the, the the motorcycle rider. Um, but up until the, 19th, the 20th century, uh, the RIC who were there were Irish speakers um, because, of course, Antrim was, uh, you know, parts of Antrim uh, mm. had had Irish speakers uh, still, uh, still living there. So... Um, so in in some ways, when my grandfather went to the north, uh, there was a network of XRIC men from the south that he could connect with occasionally, uh, fairly surreptitiously, I would imagine as well. But of course, because of his accent and they knew he was a Catholic, um, he was then sort of vilified in Larne, um, County Antrim, which of course is a very loyalist town. Uh, I mean, there was there was very prominent graffiti next to the barracks in Larne, which said, Sergeant Connolly is an IRA man. <laughs> so, Jeez. you know, from a, from, from, a, from a position where he was being, you know, nearly assassinated by the IRA in Carrick and Shure, now in, in County Antrim in Larne, they were accusing him of being an IRA man because, uh, because of his accent. Of course, my, you know, my grandmother was from County Kerry. She, she wouldn't leave the house to go to the shops in Larne because... Um, she just didn't feel comfortable. Um, I don't know whether that relates back to the boycott in in uh, in the War of Independence days, but you know she would always get a grocer's boy to come on, a, on his bicycle to bring the provisions to the house. Um, so yeah, so there was this weird adjustment he would have had to make, um, and and that was part of the strange life that he had. And my father and his my aunts and uncles uh, growing up in Larne. Absolutely, yeah, I can well imagine. It strikes me, Tony, and I, I just because I looked into a bit of it at the time of the commemoration, just talk about that in a minute, but th- there's a huge element of a lost tribe in relation to the RIC people. I mean, they, they, they were displaced and um, in some ways they, they, they couldn't go back, you know, you, you can't turn back the clock yeah. and there was no turning it back at that yeah. stage, you know. Yeah, that that's right. I mean, my my father says he used to ask his father, my grandfather, why he would never have joined uh, the the new civic guard, which then became the Guard of Shikona. And his view was that it was filled with IRA men, and he he couldn't he couldn't uh, possibly reconcile that. Um, and I think that's true. A lot of the rank and file Garda civic guards in the in the nineteen twenties were former uh, IRA men or flying squad uh, individuals. Um, but the, the, 
I mean, the, the, just on your point about the lost tribe, and it's a, it's a really good way of putting it. Um, I think in the historiography of the 1920s and the, the, the new state, the RIC were fairly blanketed uh, with the, the charge of being, you know, treasonous spies and traitors and so on, and one one and the same as the as the black and tans. But actually, the the Anglo Irish Treaty specifically differentiates between the black and tans and the RIC in terms of how they should be treated, and also differentiates between RIC men who joined prior to nineteen nineteen and those who joined afterwards. So, so, so that, that sort of official recognition that these guys are not the black and tans, these guys were just a regular police force, that was actually baked into the treaty that, uh, you know, that Michael Collins signed. Um, but, but that sort of got forgotten in the historiography uh, of the issue in later years. Yeah, that is very interesting because, as you say, and again, going back to that commemoration three years ago, the... the um the big thing, no, in my opinion, it was done on purpose, but the big thing is people were, began suggesting that this was effectively to commemorate the Black and Tans, which, of course, it was nothing of the sort of Black and Tans where people were taken out of prisons in the UK, brought over here when the War of Independence was underway and they had a, a, a well-deserved reputation for brutality and there's no question about that. But that uh, that became mixed up with the RIC and you go back again to... Jeez, only, what, seven or eight years previously and the status of the RIC people then within the community. Never cuddly or anything. They were always regarded with some sort of separateness. But um, that uh, kind of mixing it up with the black and tans and the auxiliaries, I think that's something that stuck with a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that that, that really gets to the heart of the controversy over this issue and... um you know, I, I I don't necessarily want to take sides. Um, <laughs> as an RT journalist, I, I can't really. But uh, yeah. but you know, I I think look, um, the I suppose technically speaking, the black and tans were they they were it's the special constable reserve. Um, they they were technically part uh, an addition to and part of the the RIC. The auxiliaries were a slightly separate uh, body of of men. Um, and I think this, the, the idea of having a special reserve or a special constabulary, um, there was something similar to that in the 19th century. So they were obviously repeating some of the structures they had before. Um, but, you know, there's there's no doubt that a lot of RIC men were horrified by the, you know, the manners, the language, the activities, the brutality of the black and tans. I mean, that's well documented in the literature Um and you know, I, I I don't know where my grandfather stood, to be quite honest. But you know, there there is a there's a key part in the documentary where he he encounters an IRA man um, that he knew, uh, and he was in a lorry that was behind two lorries of black and tans um, during the War of Independence. And I mean, it was a it's it's a fairly decisive moment, shall we say. I'll, I'll not sort of give too many away too away too many spoilers, but um, I, I think it really got gets to the very heart of of that strange relationship um, between my grandfather and you know the IRA in his area. Um, there was a slightly unexpected uh, um, outcome of that encounter, shall we say? But you know, in general terms, yeah, of course, a lot of rank and file RIC men were 
you know, we're, we're not like the black and tans and, and we're horrified by them. Uh, by the same token, I'm sure a lot of them were, were grateful for them because they felt that they were under siege. They're, they were being murdered uh, right, left and centre. Their barracks were being attacked. Um, you know, like dozens and dozens of RIC men quit um, during the and before the War of Independence. They simply couldn't cope. Um, or they went over to the IRA uh, or they they were passing secrets or information to the IRA so it was, it was a very complex, nuanced uh, situation. It was. And, and you're right, actually, and I have to say people will see that in the documentary. It is very interesting. And it brings to highlight the complexities of the situation, I would think, as well, that that, that uh, incident that you're referring to. The, um, unlike you, Tony, I'm not an RT journalist and I have <laughs> expressed an opinion on what happened in 2020. And I, if anything, I, I, I feel more reinforced in that opinion. And that is largely that it's sad that 100 years on, we cannot, for whatever reason, in this country, come to a point where we can recognise our history and the complexities of it. All of that in one vein, in another it's very interesting that there's a, a major push in terms of uh, reunification of this island. Yet if we cannot uh, address these issues, and those would be issues that perhaps those people in the northeast who have a, a loyalist uh, fidelity w- w- would relate to, I think that speaks for itself as well. Having said all of that, the specific commemoration and the plans for it were cack-handed to the extent that it was to be the first kind of set piece of the uh, period that was to be commemorated in terms of the War of Independence. And to do that, commemorating the RIC, I think, was not the brightest thing that they ever came up with. Notwithstanding that, now I think most of the stuff was handled very well. From your perspective, Tony, and I won't ask you to comment on any of that unless, unless you expressly want to, but from <laughs> no, your perspective, really. from your perspective, um, did you learn from it in terms of your family history and in terms of your understanding and, and how, you, uh, how you have taken in your family history? I mean, I learned an awful lot um, about about the RIC and about the revolutionary period and indeed the 19th century. I mean, uh, it, it's fascinating how important the creation of the RIC was because it was the first blueprint for a colonial police force. I mean, the way the RIC was structured and designed, that was the template for all colonial police forces in the British Empire. Um, It was the first time, I mean, when Robert Peel uh, created the Constabulary Act, which created this um, four provincial police forces and then the Dublin Metropolitan Police were separate um, it was the first time the word police was used in any legislation uh, in the UK. So they, they, they have a very long and, and fascinating history. Um, but they were, I, I suppose I got a real sense of, of them just being in between, caught in between uh, forces that were beyond their control. And that was true of so many cohorts of people, I guess, in that period of time. You know, you had the First World War, um, you, you know, you had the Civil War, people caught on the wrong side of history and and I suppose what the the most powerful impression I get from my grandfather was that he was just simply trying to navigate that and to raise his family. And he so he had, you know, it's interesting the way partition just was a, a kind of a wedge through his life. Um, you know, he and my grandmother had three children in Carrick-on-Sure, pre-partition, and then three in County Antrim, post-partition. And, my, you know, my family on that side, my father's side, had to make their way 
in life in very difficult circumstances as Catholics, um, you know, with this backstory of County Galway and, and Carrick and Shure and County Kerry, you know, in this fledgling, somewhat sectarian state of Northern Ireland, and especially in Larne, which was a very, you know, hardcore loyalist uh, area, the, the gun running, all of the, you know, the the, the key landmarks of, of unionism are there and they were having to navigate their way through that. And my Auntie Mary talks about uh, how they would be, get, the, the loyalists would stone them on First Communion Day if they saw them in their First Communion outfits, how my grandfather as an RUC man had to protect them uh, protect local Catholics getting on the boat in Larne to Dublin for the Eucharistic Congress in 1932. You know, my grandfather had to walk a very fine line in protecting his family and protecting his community, if you like, but at the same time showing that he was upholding the values and fidelity uh, to the RUC and the Northern Ireland state. So that was a very tricky line he had to walk. And I know, you know, one story that we didn't sadly make it into the documentary was that he would fly the Union Jack outside the house in Larne every 12th fortnight. And one year in a fit of nationalist peak, my father came in from school and took the thing in and tore it up and put it under the bed. And uh, my grandfather saw it and uh, didn't say a word. And next year there was no Union Jack flying. Uh, so those were the little landmines he had to sort of navigate uh, as a as a Catholic RUC man in Larne, formerly RIC uh, and, uh, you know, but ultimately a father. And, you know, that, that was the, that's the abiding impression that I have in, in making this documentary. It is, it is a fascinating, as you say, such a, a difficult um, line to travel, absolutely. I mean, I suppose another way of looking at it, Tony, was if, if there was a, uh, if there was no war of independence, you could have ended up playing hurling for Tipperary, you know? <laughs> yeah, so there's always a silver lining, isn't there? <laughs> Listen, uh, Hidden History is a documentary, folks. I said I can't recommend it highly enough. It is really interesting, and I think it should be food for thought for everybody, particularly anybody who has any interest in the history of this country. Tony Connolly, thanks very much. Thanks, Mick. Uh, as always, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. We'll be back with you soon. Take it easy in the meantime. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.